episode two, uh, Marketeers Clubhouse. I'm Jamie Kale on the host. Uh, my co-host, Pierre Martin, who we all know is missing. Uh, I think he's traveling around for uh, his current job right now, uh, being an adult, where we get a few minutes to not be adults and do a podcast, which is amazing. Uh, today, I do have um, Alex Langevin, uh, my very good friend uh, who lives in Quebec, Canada, uh, and works on both my teams at uh, 54 Blue and Regulator and has been in my life for what, Alex? 20 years? 25 years? 25 years, yeah. Yeah, 25 years we've been uh, <laughs> worked together, been very good friends together and enjoyed some amazing times. Alex, welcome and thanks for uh, jumping in and, and being here. Uh, today, Alex and I are talking to Carl Bissonnette one of our very good friends uh, and I've got a very good working relationship. Alex has actually very got an amazing personal relationship and does all sorts of fun things uh, with Carl and Carl's got a really interesting background uh, and currently is charged with uh, being the steward of the marketing for North Face Canada. Um, and North Face Canada is a powerhouse. It just is. Uh, obviously, North Face is the 10-ton gorilla in the outdoor category. And then Canada being a first world country with a very cold climate. And, and Carl, you guys selling products that facilitate uh, frail humans uh, living in cold climates and being able to get out and enjoy the outdoors. Um, you, have a, you have a giant job. Um, before we get into sort of North Face and its parent company, VF, and all the amazing things that sort of surround that world. Uh, I'd love to get a little bit of a background, where you came from, um, who you are as a, as a person, how you met Alex, all that kind of stuff. Uh, let's go back as far as, far as necessary, um, you know, to, to young Carl. Uh, and see, you know, none of us are young men anymore. We're, we're happily middle-aged humans, um, but live, uh, like boy child, uh, humans and, uh, are barely adults. So take us back quite a ways and, and welcome. Let, let's hear where you're from. Well, first off, thanks for having me, uh, Jamie. This is a, this is, this is going to be super fun. Um, like you said, uh, I think, I think all of us have like probably similar background a little bit, and maybe I'm going to start. Uh, you know, at a young age, maybe, uh, you know, my, my parents were always active. We had a cottage. We were living just in the suburbs of Montreal. Um, but we always had a cottage, you know, in the Laurentians. And that allowed us to spend a lot of time, you know, by the lake, outside, living active lifestyle. So that, that was really part of uh, my childhood and just growing up, you know, playing in the forest, whether it was skiing in winter uh, wakeboarding in summertime and water skiing. We were really, really active. Um, and through the years, you know, my, my, my father, uh, when we hit our teenage years, decided that there was an opportunity to change a cottage into our, our full-time home. So we basically did a full tear down. I remember being like probably 13 or 14 years old and building a house, you know, with, with my father, um, and well, building a house, helping him, you know, handing him the tools and everything, but, uh, but that became our, our, our home. And, and that was just on the, on the outskirt of Trombley. So, you know, from a teenage age, um, you know, I've spent a lot, of, a lot of time on the mountains, snowboarding, and that's where I forged a lot of friendships and a lot of, uh, the traits, you know, that makes up the person that I am today, um, really started 
on on the ski hill really and that had some pros and cons you know in in retrospect you know it's a it's a life of leisure and you get to see people you know Tremblant being a uh uh you know obviously a tourism uh you know mecca you know in in Quebec you just end up being surrounded by people that are on vacation all the time so yeah. life becomes a little uh you know you're trying to deal with high school and you know work on the side you know i was wor working at the snowboard shop you know in retail and um yeah you just you just see see that so i think that had an impact in in you know growing up that leisure uh was always very intertwined with work and just like with my young adults or teenagers responsibilities whatever they they were you know at the time does your brand need some help in the trade marketing department manage your sales tools with regulators easy to use features whether it's fixtures or displays pop custom art or promo products you can submit single or bulk orders for all your locations within minutes using a simple streamlined process Deliver content, manage your budget, and view the market all from the palm of your hand. Move up to 10 times faster than your competitors and capture all the opportunities that put your brand on top. Visit brandregulator.com for more information. That's amazing. I see, see some hilarious, like Alex is just laughing because Alex, that sounds like your background. That very much sounds like my background. I, being in Calgary, I got like influxed with Banff. It was Banff, 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 always out there. And for me, it was snow sports were a big part of my life. Um, obviously it's Canada, uh, but for me, it was bikes. Uh, and for Alex, it was motocross. Um, and so we, we all come from slightly different elks, but I also, uh, like you were born with tools in your hand from, from the sounds of things. You're a builder. And I know a little bit about your background. I believe, you know, the house you're living in now, you've been, you, you had quite a hand in erecting that structure. Alex, the structure you're living in, you put up yourself as well. Uh, and, and I am a perpetual builder of things. So um, this is one of those things that I see as a common element for a lot of my friends, the people that resonate with me. If you, if you don't know how to hold a screwdriver, we have a lot of things to learn about each other because we won't hold the same commonalities. And you know, I want people that are, um, in my world that, that have common elements with. So Alex, from your background, um, you come from the same space. Yeah, totally. You know, coming back from a, like a motocross background and then being, uh, uh, mixing with the, the snowboard environment. And, and actually I think this is where like Carl and I met in Trauma where I was like, uh, a snowboard instructor between between uh, um, and and college and uh, you know off season for motocross and uh, we you know this is how we met uh, our crew and now the, the the people we live it we live with and have uh, activities with. Perfect. So for people outside of Quebec, Cezep Cezep is like Cezep. just post high school or your last year of high school and then you go into college from there. It's like a college prep link. Is that yep. accurate? Okay. Yeah. Um, don't forget, guys, that this is going to go to everybody. So you're going to have to explain some of the very intricate natures of Quebec. <laughs> and, and I have a beautiful wife that was born uh, born in central Canada, but all her formative years were spent in the Gatineau and grew up in Quebec. And so I've been uh, very much uh, uh, educated in, in, in the ways of Quebec. So um, and, and we're going to get into that. Um, Carl, sort of from that young era, you started, you know, you grew up in 
that sort of snow world, where, where was your first job? Where was your first, like, what's the first thing that you bit into business with? So that's funny because my, my first job, um, was working at a little, I want to say like my first real job, uh, you know, where it was retail while I was in high school was working in a, in a retail space that specialized in high-end watches and high-end sunglasses. So there was a tiny little shop, which I realize now that you guys were pro probably part of this because Oakley was a big, you know, vendor part of that shop, but we used to, we used to sell uh, you know, wa uh, brand watch like Tissot and, and, uh, and Tag Heuer. And it was, it was really fun for me, Serengeti and I wear Ray-Ban, Oakley, you know, so it was really high end product. And what I loved about that was like learning. I'm, you know, one thing that Alex knows and, and that Jamie, you, you might learn is I'm very, very, very curious human being just in general. I love to like the technicalities of things and, and sometimes for even topics that are going to be completely useless, like I get down the rabbit hole and that's kind of, I love learning. But for me, like that, that job was awesome because it was on the hill. Uh, we had goggles, you know, in, uh, in, in wintertime, obviously we, we had a, there was a big part of the business that was uh, built around just a goggle market and we specialized in it. So that, that was really fun because I was able to, I was spending so much time on the, on the, on the mountain that for me, uh, you know, the optics of a goggle was really, really important. Uh, you know, very, very early in my life, I've realized that seeing kind of clearly where you're going is going to probably help <laughs> you on the hill, you know? Yeah. So that, so that was my first, that my first job in trouble. Amazing. Uh, it, it's interesting because I, I would assume you guys do, Carl, in your position, you probably have a lot of younger people below you coming up and sort of wondering how you got to where you are and how these things happen. And it was this sort of slow climb uh, to become where we are. And the position, and Alex, I know you are, Carl, I know you are, and I like to think I am. Um, I like to believe that I'm uh, an, a real expert. I've got a lot of training in consumer experience. And when I'm listening to your backstory, um, growing up at a resort as a young man, you would have been flooded with seeing consumer experience from a local standpoint and, and working in the watch and eyewear luxury world, you would have realized and been trained at a really, really young age to understand what consumer experience is. And most people only have that from the outside, unless you've been a server or you've worked retail and then continuously driven down that path. You don't gain the expertise to be a consumer expert and understand uh, from all the, the different perspectives, the consumer's perspective, the retailer's perspective, um, the staff's perspective, um, and the, you know, sales and marketing and all the different things from the branded side, um, to understand how it all fits together as a puzzle is, is really important. And it seems like that's been formed at very young ages. Uh, in, in yourself. So when you're going through sort of your day-to-day -day work, do you, like, I know it happens to me. I, I think back to these really young experiences in a lot of instances where I've learned that lesson a long time ago, the filing cabinet, my brain starts going. And sometimes it just goes back, you know, 40 years to when I was 12 years old working in a bike shop and go, I dealt with that. And, and then I find it. Do you find that happening in your world uh, fairly often? Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, and I'll, I'll maybe start with what we've lived in the last few years is, you know, through a global pandemic has really highlighted um, 
especially around experiential marketing where consumers live something with brand like for real, you know, in real life. And that's been kind of removed, you know, no one's been able to engage with brands in, an, in, in, a, in a true and experiential way uh, for, you know, a couple of years, depending on the regions globally that we, that you were, uh, it's been shorter or longer, but everyone's kind of put, you know, their, their engagement with brands kind of on hold in real life. It kind of all shifted to, to the digital space. Uh, and, you know, when I think about how through my lifetime, I've engaged with brands, you know, I remember, uh, whether through music festivals and having brands on site, whether through, uh, sporting events, snowboarding competitions, for example, where some of the sponsors were on site. Uh, I remember like one event that pops up in my mind was, well, I, again, I was fairly young in Tremblant, was a Snowboard Canada, Canada uh, kind of weekend where there was a slope style, a big air. Um, and, and that was exciting, you know, to feel that, to feel the crowd, to feel the, the excitement of something that was out of ordinary. Um, I think... That's something that now when I'm thinking of my marketing mix and, and experiential, experiential marketing is something that we're, we're all going back to because the research has shown that consumers are longing, they're, they're craving for those brand experiences uh, coming out of a global pandemic. Um, you know, whether it's at a grassroots level, level on some maybe smaller initiatives or, or, or larger initiatives where there's, you know, uh, s some of the initiatives that we have in summertime, for example, where there's a few couple thousand participants, you know, um, it's whether this, no matter the scale of, of the initiative, I think, I think I always try to put myself back as a kid or as a younger consumer, that's kind of maybe just engaging in the world and, and seeing things for the first time, because it's easy for us middle-aged dudes, you know, to, to be like, oh no, that's been done. It's, but for, for younger consumers, that's something that, that might still be new. So it's important, I think, to stay in touch with and kind of remembering that, that emotional um, memory, I want to say, that, that we've lived through, you know, through our, through our lifetime and, and not get disconnected. And that's why, like, surrounding yourself with um, different and, and diverse individuals around you that will bring that different perspective that are a different, I want to say, uh, position in their life cycle, consumer life cycle, uh, is important to keep, keep that in mind. Yeah, that's amazing. We're going to jump back to this point really quickly, but I want to bring back something, um, that Alex and I were chatting about yesterday and I was just sort of picking at him because he's got more experience with you as a, as just a friend. And I'm like, what's, where did, where did Carl come from? What's his education? And he, he referenced something that resonated really hard with me. And you have this like technical training in the world of logistics, which we're, we're going to speak about a little bit. What's, what's your background in sort of that sort of, you know, outside of traditional business and marketing training, you've got this sort of secret skill. So, so that, that was really interesting. So really quickly, just for context. So from, from Tremblant, I lived in Whistler for a few years started traveling, moved to Australia, started, you know, for just over a year. And then I, at one point I came back to Tremblant and just wanted to finish university, uh, just in studying marketing through that. I met my, uh, my, my former wife and we moved to Montreal and that was 2008. 
2008 wasn't a great year overall just for opportunities, right? It was a massive disruption around, around the economy and everyone was kind of edgy about like new hires. So there, was, there wasn't a lot of opportunity. But one thing that came up um, was I, I had the opportunity to, be, uh, to live, live in the city, you know, in Montreal. And I had the opportunity to work at a, at a logistic firm, so a brokerage firm. And I was like, you know what, like this, this might be interesting. You know, it's something that obviously uh, logistics, the world will always need logistics, right? It's just like, that's at the core um, of the economy. So being curious in nature, that's something that I was like, all right, let's take on the challenge. You know, this is, this is going to be a good learning experience. And I, I ended up working at this company for, I want to say close to three years where essentially being a logistic broker. So cold calling companies, trying to provide logistic solutions, um, matching offer and demand really in the logistic world and, and trying to, you know, you try to take your piece of it in, in, in the, in the process. Um, and that was extremely formative for me because you've, I've never, I mean, I've done retail, I've done, I've done other sales, but that was by far the hardest sales job I've ever had. And I think that's shaped a little bit, even today, you know, obviously, you know, in the wholesale, uh, business, uh, you know, marketing sales and product, that's kind of the, the Bermuda triangle that we, that we call, right? right. And having that understanding of really, really, really hard sales, when your product is really hardly differentiated by the next guy, um, is something that to this day, I, I still have like a fairly strong sales perspective on things. Um, having gone through that, 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 that part of my life. Amazing. It, it's interesting because if you don't get experience in all those different spots and well, pardon me, I shouldn't hit the mic. If you don't get experience in those different spots um, and Alex, you, you've had a real hard career of like jumping back and forth between logistical and non-logistical. And if you're just at retail or if you're just a sales agent, or if you're just sitting at the brand and you're just working on a computer and you don't have to understand the logistics, like right now, Alex, you and I were discussing this other, the other day, there's this insane diesel hike in pricing right now. And it's based on a bunch of different variables, but in the end, what it's doing is it's choking off supply from everything. It chokes off supply from products, supply of marketing materials getting in. All these different things get choked and everything escalates in price. And this is purely logistics. That's all it is. And, and the economics that fall behind that. Um, Alex, you've, you actually work with Carl um, and, and help supply a bunch of different marketing materials through uh, Agency 54 Blue. When you're thinking logistics, and I know you think logistics 24 seven, what are your learnings? What have you, you know, like there's a level of flexibility that you need and you need to be so in tune with these things. How do you, how, how do you negotiate that landscape? <laughs> yeah, no, definitely. It's been uh, such a learning curve and that, that skill set of understanding like logistic and um and being able to share and communicate clearly with with clients you know has been uh has been the main issue or the main challenge is to to be able to 
clearly identify or understand and acknowledge that there's like logistic issues and how we find solution, but instead of hiding things, you know, and that's, that's one of the thing that's been kind of tricky where like we, we always try to, to avoid the subject and going like, Oh, it's not of our control. And, you know, but understanding that there's solutions we can having like a clear, uh, communication, I think is the main thing, especially in the logistic uh, world. From brand development to simple market executions, 54 Blue helps brands of all sizes grow with sustainability in mind. Their full stack range of services include print, fabrication, design, web, interactive, content marketing, brand consulting, creative strategy, and more. Why not execute at the level of the big guys? Join some of the world's largest brands and lean on 54 Blue for your next go to market. Visit 54blue.com for more information. Amazing. There's um, knowing where North Face exists and knowing Canada really well, there's some interesting dynamics that happen. And for those that don't understand Canada really clearly, there's basically two marketplaces in Canada uh, in the brick and mortar world. There's the French speaking marketplace, which exists in Quebec. And I'm going to speak to that really quickly. And then there's the rest of Canada. Now, in for most brands, the sales that generate out of Quebec are near 40 to 50% of the volume of the entire country. It's very large and it's very healthy. And for many that don't understand, and Alex, you and I discuss this all the time because it's our job to discuss this. And Carl, you are right in the center of it. Um, there is very heavy restrictions against language and the use of language in the province of Quebec. And as a young man, when I stopped, saw this, sort of from the start, it seemed short-sighted and it seemed um, draconian and unrealistic to do this in, in, in this province. But as I've aged through this and I've watched the marketplaces in Canada change, it's actually been a net very positive for Quebec. Um, it was done for cultural reasons, to protect the French culture, and both of you are living in that world. You're born and raised there. But what it has done seemingly from a business standpoint is it's kept the mom and pop retail stores and the small regionals exceedingly healthy. And just by it being there, um, it's given a small advantage for that sector of retail um, because they're slightly more nimble than the large brands with their, or, you know, or large box stores can be with these things. Mom and pop can act faster. So by nature, Quebec has a way healthier independent retail business with more options for brands to go to. It has a ton of amazing mid-size to large size. Like I, I don't want to call a, a sport expert uh, a small store because these are giant stores, but the owners will hold um, you know, three or four or five of these stores, they don't have a hundred like, like, you know, or in the case of sport checks or, 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 uh, Dick sporting goods in the U S you know, almost a thousand retail stores that, that all fall under this banner. In fact, sport check doesn't even exist in Quebec to this day where, you know, cause it's cumbersome for them to, to be there. Um, so when you look at the landscape of Canadian retail, you have Quebec, which is this beautifully, very actually quite clean marketplace, which is amazing. 
when you when you look at it. And then the rest of Canada starts feeling a little bit more like the rest of North America. It feels a little bit more United States-esque, where you've got a lot of big box stores, a few good regionals, and ever-shrinking independent accounts that are getting beat up by these big guys. This gives the consumer less choices, and it gives the brands a harder landscape to negotiate. Now, Carl, you have to negotiate both of these, running what would arguably be one of the most important territories for North Face, the brand that you're entrusted with running. You've got to navigate the insane language laws, which you guys have grown up in, so you're fairly familiar, but it is a cumbersome thing. Um, plus, you also have to really have a mental switch between dealing with your distribution within Quebec and then the distribution outside of Quebec is like, is a completely different world where the US, it's a little bit, you, you got mega cities, but the distribution is very similar. How do you, how do you manage that? Are my assumptions correct? Um, like, it seems like this is a fairly obvious thing, but it seems really tricky. So we could do a whole podcast on this because it, it's so complex and there's so many variables, but obviously it's going to be hard for me to talk about, about, about some of our partners directly. But one thing that I can speak to uh, directly is, is the consumer centricity around like, who are we ultimately selling to is the end user. Right. And there are regional major regional specificities between um, you know, the French Canadian speaking, whether it's in Quebec or outside of Quebec, uh, outside of Canada, it's just that the proportion is, is much, much smaller in the rest of Canada, um, and the rest of, Can uh, uh, of the market, the rest of Canada. Um, the, what's at the, you, you've, you've mentioned something that there's a higher, um, ratio of independent businesses in Quebec. And that's, that's tied to how the consumer wants uh, to shop really in Quebec. And, and the, you know, a lot of research are, show, are showing that French Canadian will uh, sometimes identify a little bit more to the runner up and will act accordingly. So they'll, they'll try to uh, support sometimes mom and pop shops just by that way of thinking to that they identify that we got to, we got to help each other. You know, that's something that um, keeps coming back, you know, when we're uh, just, when we're uh, in our consumer insights, you know, or, or around Quebec market. That's interesting. Cause that speaks to the underdog culture that Quebec. Yeah. And that's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, it, for those that don't know, Quebec is beautiful. It's one of my favorite places literally on the planet. It's, it's a stunning province filled with amazing people. Um, but they are steadfast at keeping your culture and your identity and always, 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 always. And there's great disparity in Quebec. There's exceedingly low uh, economic areas and there's exceedingly high economic areas. Um, and with this, it, it always feels from a Western standpoint in Canada that Quebec's got this underdog feeling, even though, mm -hmm. you know, you guys aren't, you guys are like almost in some ways the pinnacle of, of some of Canadian culture. Um, but that, that really does speak to that, which is interesting because that doesn't really exist in the West. Like there's the, the support and it makes me sad. Um, but the support for small retail here is terrible. It's fucking bullshit. Like they've just let it slide for, 
slightly cheaper pricing and potentially a slightly easier shopping experience versus going into an independent. And mm-hmm. Quebec has held that hard, and I love that. Yeah, and I believe uh, no, but I, uh, you know, you were talking about like the the language uh, restrictions and some challenges that happen for the big box and the U.S. companies to come to Canada first being difficult, but also even more difficult for the, the Quebec market. And Carl, do you believe that that transition period or, or that just that, that lead time that accounts have in Quebec to react and that buffer period, you know, to understand that, you know, knowing that the, the big bucks are coming or the, 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 um, the U.S. companies are coming and they will have to struggle with the language barrier Uh, or the language regulation allow them to react and diversify and and elevate their game uh, and and even become like a mom and pop shop, but becoming like a large independent, you know, or a larger independent and growing their business and and having that little buffer period was like an asset for them, pretty much, you know. Even though it was like, if you look at it from from the exterior, uh, like Jamie was saying, you could say that okay, it's it's a lot of regulation, a lot of stuff to deal with, you know, tagging product and, and so on uh, and campaigning and marketing. But when you look at it, it's an asset, you know, for, for them to, um, to grow their, grow their business. 100%. One, uh, I was talking about consumer centricity and I think like for, for, for a brand like our brand, the North Face, we're, you know, head offices for Canada are situated in Quebec. I think that's a huge, and a lot of our Uh, head office staff obviously is in Montreal. We have other offices throughout the country. But when we're looking at the uh, the choices we make on how we communicate to our end users, ultimately, um, I think it's a huge advantage to be based out, out of Quebec. Just from we translate everything we do. We have to, you know, whenever we communicate something to uh, the population, especially tied to the DTC and our mm-hmm. digital marketing. Um, Um, just initiative, we we are obligated to translate everything and to offer the same, uh, you know, to our English consumers as well as our uh, to as to our French speaking consumers. And then through that translation process, that's where uh, you know you can you can be tone deaf a little bit with the right. French Canadian market right. if you translate everything, even from a product standpoint on your website, and you do like France. French translations, there's going to be discrepancies that your consumer will will tune into and will will notice that there something's off, you know, and it's it's going to feel a little bit uh, uh, not completely authentic to the Canadian, the French Canadian uh, segment. Let me go back to this just a tiny bit for no one who everyone who doesn't necessarily understand Quebec. There's um, Quebecois French, which is tuned and is you know it's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old and 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 it has its own intricate uh grammatical things and it's got its own slang for sure and then there's parisian french which is literally french french which you just talked to which is a little more sing-songy uh it's a little different and and it doesn't they don't translate perfectly against each other you guys they work but they don't work uh and What ends up happening, Alex, you can speak to this because I know you're writing a bunch of content on this because you're an expert on it, is there's um, brands that will try to use one version of French and they use they they generally pick the, the Parisian version of French 
And it doesn't translate great into Quebec, which is a giant marketplace. Quebec naturally is probably the second largest marketplace in North America or third next to uh, the greater New York area and Southern California. The next one is Quebec. So to neglect the language correctly in that space doesn't make sense. And so um, I think most people just don't understand this and brands coming in really struggle with it, Carl. And they also don't understand that hang tags, all marketing, all digital messaging, all window front messaging, anything, it all has to be in the correct French in Quebec in this giant marketplace. And there is literally a group of people running around handing out fines. If it's wrong or if it's English, um, they will do it. And once you get dinged once, you get, they just keep coming back at your company over and over. They're like, yeah, you're a perpetual uh, line stepper on our culture X brand. And we're now just going to keep banging away at you until you get it right. So it's cumbersome. And you, you brought it back that most brands put their head offices in Quebec. And that is a brilliant decision because it's such an intricate, it's a huge, it's the biggest marketplace. Anyone like, no one can disagree with that. And it's so intricate. So um, everyone needs to understand it's super hard. It's, you've mentioned it's cumbersome. Yes. But at the same time, I think it really allows us to, uh, to, to, properly articulate the need from a business standpoint to do it right. Um, I, I think if it wasn't cumbersome, there'd be a lot more kind of, uh, you know, we, we probably take shortcuts sometimes, you know, but this, we, we're not allowed to take shortcuts. And, you know, from a, you know, I'm obviously French speaking, born, born and raised, you know, in, in a, in a French Canadian household. Um, so I, I, I do appreciate it. I do acknowledge that it's, it's cumbersome, but I think it's necessary, um, and and it it allows us, uh, like you know, going back to the mom and pop shops. I think that's a great tool for them to kind of rely on and to 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 protect a little bit. But then brands that want to come into the, the Quebec market, you and and you want to do it right. Uh, there's a huge opportunity because it's more work because it's, it's more technical a little bit and you need to get a little bit of that specialty, but then this, this will allow you to really connect with your consumers to another level. Um, you know, when we're talking about the language itself, it'd be the equivalent of, you know, the French in Quebec versus translating to a Parisian French would be the same thing as a European brand trying to come uh, you know, into the U.S., for example, and translating uh, for the Hispanic community uh, with Spanish from Spain. It just wouldn't work. It doesn't work, with exception that you don't get a ticket if you do it wrong or if you don't do it in the U.S., which is the interesting spot, is it's actually enforced. I deal, and Alex, uh, Alex and I deal with a, a company called Chemical Guys, which is a mm -hmm. car care company, amazing company. And their main consumer is Hispanic. And so everything needs to translate over for that. But there's no fines. There's no rules. It's, it's done because it's the right thing to do, not necessarily because it's protected. And I mentioned it before, but like 15 years ago, I thought the rules in Quebec were just crazy. Now I actually look at it and go, it's brilliant. Like it actually is. And, and from a Western, that is not 
a standard Western point of view. Um, but from a business point of view, it's created a way healthier environment. And, and I think that's yeah. really important. And it's cumbersome for brands. Um, they see this beautiful marketplace with lots of great people who are athletic that want to, you know, buy these, you know, the style of products that we're talking about right now. Um, healthy culture, all these different things and lots of you. Uh, and then they look at actually the workload and they just can't do it, which slows the advance of these brands down, uh, which is probably one of the other things that makes it healthier. They just don't flood in. Like you guys can still get it. If you need that stuff, you can buy it online, you can get it, but it, it gives the marketplace a chance to adapt. Um, and post COVID, you know, pre COVID seemed weird post COVID. I think it actually is healthier. Slowing everything down just a tiny bit isn't a bad thing in the world of business. It keeps the marketplaces healthy. And, and I think that's really important for most people to understand. Um, the Alex, and I, I know that we talk about this all the time, and, and Carl, you've already spoken to it. The experience of the consumer has changed, and it is changing. And speaking of your giant marketplaces, you have a giant digital uh, place in Quebec called Altitude that it sells everything and, and North Face is on there. How in the world of post-COVID where I believe consumer experience needs to be sharper, needs to be better, um, needs to be more um, catered to the experience the consumer can get the product everywhere and buy the same jacket everywhere. Um, the consumer experience needs to be on point. And I, I've told Alex this story and Carl, you, you haven't heard this. I wanted, I built a basketball court this year. I wanted a new pair of shoes, uh, went on one of the large brand site, found the shoes I wanted, went to a large box retailer in Calgary, walked in, I was looking around. I'm like, I think this is the shoe. It looked a little different. I don't know if it was a, a an SMU, a special makeup unit. And it was just like, didn't seem quite right. Um, but that's a problem with me anyways. I got size 13 feet. Most shoes are picked, you know, phot photographed at size eight or nine. So everything is always a little different in the footwear world. I looked at these shoes and I'm like, mm, I don't think these are them. So I walked out the store and I bought them online because I know my size. Three weeks later, uh, it took a while to get them. Three weeks later, the shoes showed up. Same fucking shoe. It's the exact same shoe I had in my hand at that retailer. The retailer did such a poor job of representing that brand in Marketplace. Their, their point of purchase materials were off. The messaging didn't match the digital messaging that I was seeing online. Of course, you and Alex and I are very familiar with this. And for everyone at listening, uh, if you don't understand what Photoshop does to products on digital, you don't understand that they're completely enhanced. Just imagine every Instagram filter that ever existed, but you're applying that against your product so that the reflections are perfect and the materials look ideal and the colors are popping and everything is perfect. Problem is if the messaging at retail doesn't work, you get the exact problem I just had where the consumer, I still did okay. I got my shoes. The brand that sold me those shoes still did okay. They got the sale. In fact, they probably made more digitally. Their retailer that they're trying to support, which is a huge component of their marketplace, it's ha probably over half of what their marketplace is, they completely blew it. That they, they, they blew it at their retailer or their retailer blew it for them. How do you combat with large digital guys 
how do you combat keeping your brick and mortar at speed with your digital marketing, um, which every brand has to fight? This is like, this is not a North Face thing. This is not just a, a footwear company thing. Um, how do you combat that? We're not here for the snooty wine critics or long-haul collectors. Hell, we're not even here for the high rollers. But we do think it's about time wine sellers turned into swoon-worthy works of art. Our experienced designers will bring your dream wine cellar to life, fitting any size, space, and aesthetic requirements in your home. Our craftsmen carefully hand-build your cellar to give you a wine storage space that really feels like you. Visit themoderncellar.com for more information. I, I don't think I would use the word combat though. The, the way I see it is that like, whether any channel, I'm not gonna speak to a specific channel because obviously we, we work in, in many different channels, whether, whether it's the prosumer, wholesale, D2C, it, it's all the same challenge really. It's, it's how do we evolve how we go to market? How do we evolve how we present product brand storyline and everything a brand has to offer to a consumer like product is one piece but it's also how do we pres i think consumers right now they they want to feel a brand they want to understand the person the personality of a brand Agreed. they want to get to the bottom of the product the technicality of the product it's it's we we don't operate in a world where it, it's it's really uh, you're buying simply a product from a brand so to go back to your question, it's, it's more, how do we hold ourselves to the highest standard of what's possible? And how do we keep evolving, uh, whether it's an in-store display, how do we communicate? Like technology is, is hard sometimes like to, to, you want to speak to the highest technicality when I'm thinking of, of the North Face Summit series, for example, right. we want to speak to the highest, uh, technical aspect of a product. But how do we make it? We have limited time. You know, consumers, the, the attention span is, is shortening and shortening. How do we, how can we communicate something that's exciting, technical, and that the consumer is going to remember about our product in a very short um, and efficient way at retail, at brick and mortar, but also from a digital standpoint? And then the way we're going to do it through our channels and the way we will support our partners in the wholesale, you know, channel to, to, reach that goal is going to make us win. That's really the, the bottom line. It's just how can we evolve it and get to the next level of consumer, of really brand communication to the consumers. That's, Carl, that's do you the, think, the challenge. Do you think it's easier as a, as a Canadian subsidiary, uh, knowing that uh, you already have to uh, do segmentation for French translation and some campaign and, uh, you know, we always say that the Canadian market has a healthy distribution and a healthy brand, Im brand image. Do you think it's easier for a, a Canadian subsidiary to actually, like you're saying, uh, focus on the strong stories and maintain like a high level and, and pure and really clean brand message in the marketplace compared to, uh, you know, when you have to do like th that same message in, in America, in the U.S., uh, and you have to, to tackle multiple and multiple categories where in Canada, you might have the, the flexibility, I would say, to, to cherry pick your stories. Well, I, th I think, 
I can't speak I can't speak for my global counterparts, but what I can say is that like everything's put through a filter, you know, from a from a global standpoint. And everything we're doing, it's 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 a strategic decision to go after. Then I've been very fortunate, you know, and, and with VF, we have a lot of regional leeways to kind of do what's right for our consumers and go after, you know, the the probably and prioritize our business and our business decisions. So we've been I've been very, very fortunate. Maybe just to do one step back, I've entered VF in a completely different brand. I I came into VF as a, a marketing coordinator for uh, the Reef brand, which was um, uh, previously uh, owned by VF. Um, so think about it like a surf brand in Canada. So that that's kind of difficult, but we were allowed to, uh, and we were fortunate enough to be to allow to kind of do our own decision through the kind of what needs to be true for the brand to operate in our in our regions. Um, so where I'm going with this is that is that yes, absolutely, Alex, we're 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 lucky that we're we're able to kind of prioritize based on regional opportunities. And for Canada, for a brand that like the North Face now, I'm very fortunate because the brand is highly highly adapted to the regional specificities uh, around the really weather pattern and just like weather in general. Uh, a large part of our business is in insulated outerwear and just overall, uh, just overall outerwear. Um, in, in Canada, you know, and having, uh, I, you know, we had, we had people working on the brand that came to Canada, uh, you know, from, from the U S but it, it, it was interesting for them to realize that in Montreal, like go in, in, in February, going to the store to pick up a loaf of bread and, and some milk can be, you know, challenging, you know, in a, in a snowstorm, you know, for, for us, it, we, we, we've lived through this. We're, you know, born through this, but for someone from the outside, it's like, oh my God, I'm actually using my outerwear. It's, it's very, very useful, be beyond useful, you know, it's necessary. So we're, we're very fortunate with uh, the North Face in Canada because we've got really strong affinity or, or really strong tie to what the bulk of our product line and our, our, our product categories, uh, they're relating to, to, to the consumers. Speaking to my colleagues, you know, in Mexico, they've got a bit of a different opportunity in their own market. You know, for them, it's really focused on trail running and building that segment, you know, around, around hiking and trail running um, and, and around the, what we call the, the off mountain space. Uh, sure. th that can be, you know, for, for that region, that can be maybe a little bit more prioritized versus, uh, us here in Canada where snow sport and just outerwear in general is, is, uh, is very an automatic or pr you, a priority. You guys are fortunate to have a product line that is so solid in all seasons that you, you, you can support literally everywhere on the planet. It works in the freezing cold and the boiling hot North face is actually ubiquitous in all those environments. It's, it's just, it's a brand that has the width to be able to support that, which is amazing. We're something like reef sandals, as you mentioned, it's like, you, you kind of need warm weather for that. And, and reef couldn't, you know, there's just by nature of the product, you can't bridge, uh, bridge that, which is a, you know, just the nature of the power of how great North face is as a, as a brand. And there's a few brands out there that can do that. Nike, Oakley, North Face. Um, you know, there's uh, all the big ones that you know that are global brands can exist in that world because they've got 
the base set up as a brand to be able to expand into these other marketplaces. So, but that's where Jamie and maybe, you know, with reef, for example, that was, it, it was so much fun working on this brand, you know, and, uh, because we had, you know, we were developing an apparel business where we had some, some jackets and stuff. And, and it was kind of a hard, uh, adoption rate globally. But for us in Canada, we we're like pedal to the metal. Let's do this. You know? So we, we aligned with like some of our endemic partners and we, we were able to push the brand. We even, we focused, you know, on, on the holiday season, for example, that was kind of a smaller season for a summer type brand, but we decided to really focus and own in on Canada. And we had some, well, through, you know, some partnerships and stuff, we had, we had some retail space, you know, with some of our um, action sports, you know, partners and, you know, an example of, of how we tried to really be tight with the market is we decided to do like one of the, one of the shoot uh, for the holiday period out of Tofino. So we were able to really integrate, you know, the product storytelling into the campaign and our partners, our retailers were ecstatic about it because then it was like they could speak to their consumers in an authentic way. And that was something that was new for the brand, but allowed even other regions like Europe or Australia, you know, that that was kind of the opposite to to kind of diversify a little bit and change a little bit the positioning of the brand just to to try to maximize the year round opportunity around the brand. So there's always like creative ways where you can kind of. Uh, you know, if you get the, you know, the leadership support, you know, to kind of go after those opportunities, there's always a creative voice to, uh, to, to go after it. Amazing. Amazing. The, um, getting back to like, when we're talking about digital marketplace, and I look at the world fundamentally as simple as I can in every area. It's, it's such a tricky world nowadays. So I, I look at things as digital and brick and mortar as being the two primary marketplaces that exist. Um, you, you, you spoke to the messaging being simple enough and sticky to translate between the two. That's what we just sort of discussed. The logistical difference though, between being able to deliver um, a good experience digitally and a good experience physically in brick and mortar. These are fundamentally different. And I look at this as a go-to-market experience, a GTM experience. It's like, if you're going to launch something digitally, you need its counterpart. If, if you're going to launch in both worlds, brick and mortar and digital, you, your, your timing gets tricky. Digital can move really quick. You can launch a digital campaign globally or regionally in like super, super fast, where I know that North Face does a ton of amazing shop and shop experiences. And you guys are doing more and more of these as you go along to make sure that your brand is always front and center and the, the product is wrapped in brand. It's just not product in market. So are you guys actively like your timing for these things would have to be tricky because you have to sort of slow the, you have to tell the digital guys to hold on a little bit while you guys in the brick and mortar world are are activating this and you would have as the the manager of marketing in Canada you would have both of the reins of both of these things and trying to get the timing of those to be correct is difficult um it, i think to say the least and you come from a logistical background where it's like to ship a chop and chop around 
or to even have to go to an outside agency to get something done uh, in the physical space because you end up with installers and boom lifts and paint companies and graphic companies and all these different things. You guys, as the incumbent, um, and I'm doing a lot of work right now um, as a consultant with digital-only brands that are now launching into the physical brick-and-mortar world, and they're completely unprepared. They don't have the logistical chops to be able to deliver a shop-and-shop, shop, but that's what they want to do. And it's like, you guys have no idea. Like, who's, who's going to paint the space? Who's going to do the electric? Who's going to handle the permits? On and on and on and on. As the 10-ton gorilla that came out of the brick-and-mortar world and adopted into digital, because you guys were around far before digital even existed, you guys had the luxury to do that. So you've already, you guys are tuned as a brick and mortar company. This gives you a massive advantage in my head. Do you guys see that advantage? Do you guys consciously, when you're working on projects, um, make sure that your GTMs are in, in perfect alignment to be able to have that clean launch? Yeah, for sure. I mean, the GTM process, I, I think that's not proprietary to, you know, my business or to, to our brand. Uh, it's just, you just need a, more lead time, you know, to plan your business ahead with the, with your own retail space or your, you know, wholesale, you know, shop and shop experience, which should be matching. By the way, it's the same brand. It should feel the same. Um, you just need to really plan ahead. And that's really the, the cadence from a digital standpoint. You kind of need to make the call early in the process, even though you would have the luxury to change the plan afterwards. And you, you, you kind of, you kind of need to kind of line up early in the process. Mm. And that's very different than a, than a brand that will only be uh DTC, for example, or only right. digital uh, right. specifically that, that can be very, very just in time. We, we don't have that luxury. So we'll, we'll be able to adjust, you know, for any major, opportunity or major challenge that that's happening, uh, you know, to, to us, uh, supply, for example, that, you know, that that's going to change plans a little bit. Um, but, but you gotta be, you gotta be prepared. You really right. got to plan your business ahead of time. And, and, and I think that's what, um, uh, you know, playing on both sides that that's what you need to commit to just overall. Yeah. It's interesting. The, the failure point of this goes back to my shoe story, which is an interesting thing. And what I see and what I interpret as the problem that happened there is a large brand released a product quickly digitally or, or was planning on doing it. Um, their large retailer insisted on having the product at launch, which if I was a large retailer, I would. But the logistical issues of the rest of the marketing flow and brick and mortar could not keep up. And, and honestly, it could have been as easy as the FedEx truck lost the package for that single dealer. I, I'm not, I, I have no experience to say this was the same experience in all the different locations at this retailer. But at that specific one, on that specific day, they dropped the ball. And that, like most consumers, you know, like I, I always say it. Um, when I was young, I, I'd drive past somewhere and I'd go, they should put a 7-Eleven there on that corner. That'd be great. Who's they? They is, they is everybody. It's us. It's me. I should put a 7-Eleven there. And when I walk in and I go, they blew it. Well, who's they? Well, they could have been FedEx. They could have been the brand. 
not being rigid against their retailers needs going, no, this is a digital only shoe. We don't have the brick and mortar um, set up for this. You cannot have it, but in, you, you would know as well as I do, it's hard to tell uh, your largest retail partners to hit the bricks and they're not going to get a product. That's uh, not a necessity, but um, I know from experience at North Face is brand first. You guys are very, very careful and you are a shining example of what a good brand management system would look like to, to extend it. The brand sells the product. The products, however, still do have to stand alone as perfect technical examples of what the brand would be. And I, I've written this before. The brand is what the consumer buys. The products are the promise of the brand. The brand promises that my puffy jacket from North Face is the best product. It's the promise. And, and that's based against its technical abilities to stand up selection of fabrics, manufacturing, uh, post, uh, pre, uh, you know, the, the bringing the consumer to the product has to be perfect. The post service of the product has to be perfect. And you guys do a really good job of that all the way along, which is, is why the North Face is what the North Face is. There's a, yeah, not a thousand, but lots and lots of people making puffy jackets and not all of them. There's some really great companies that are at your heels. There's zero doubt about that, but not all of them are good. Not all of them hold the brand promise. And there's just lots of brands where the, the power doesn't exist there. Um, from your head office down as a subsidiary into Canada and you're charged with running a jewel for, for North Bay. So let's not dilute that. Um, where's your leeway? Um, your, your brand standards are obviously so good. And as a steward of the brand, how, like, how serious do you take that? Like what, what's your, you know, that, that, that's an interesting thing because this, this comes to the, really to the nut of what you have to do. You have to be a fairly serious person. Well, it's, yeah, I take, I take it very seriously because it's, I, you know, there's, there, there, there are a few brands that are, you know, that have that icon status and, you know, North Face is, uh, you know, against the, the big, the, the biggest brand right now, you know, when we're looking at our brand health tracker, the metrics around like brand awareness, aided, unaided, like we're, we're rubbing shoulders with some of the biggest brand in this world. Undoubtedly. You know? Yeah. Uh, and, and that's something that the whole team at the North face, there's not a day that goes by that we take what we're doing for granted because there's a slew of people that would love to take my spot, you know? Yeah. So we, we all want to, you know, kind of contribute, uh, to the brand's success. Uh, seeing how the the immense work that's been done with the global teams, the regional teams, you know, in the last few years, when I when I came onto this brand, there was no segmentation strategy around the brand, and and for me, you know, I was already at VF, but for for me, that was one of the first questions that I wanted to know, you know, when I started to look at potentially this opportunity, was wh what is the brand what is going to be the brand's approach to its own future? And, mm. and, 
you know, during during that time, it's it, the brand has really grown to, I think, a stronger position in the market just based on very difficult business decision. To be willing to say no to things is is really hard, um, you know, especially for a publicly traded company. Yeah. Uh, but it sets the, the foundation for long-term value, long-term growth which is what we're feeling right now from the brand. And then you pair to this people um, like myself that are really, really proud of, of working on this brand. And, and we, we really hold each other accountable to give our best into this brand. And so that, that creates a really cooperative um, culture between the teams that, you know, there's no fingers pointing it's all about like, hey, how can we help? How what what more can we do to kind of uh, you know put this brand in the best position, ultimately to help the, the end consumer? Because that's what we're trying to solve. Is just we're trying to solve some challenges for the end consumer. Right. Um, so there's not a day that goes by that our team is not like, what what more can we? How can we optimize? You know any part of the marketing functions or for the sales team or even forecasting planning, how can we be more efficient at delivering to our end consumer? Yeah. Regardless of the channel, regardless of the function, it's just like, how can we better the end consumer experience? That's really what drives me. And, and that's what I'm really proud about being in this, uh, in, in this brand and in this company is, is that we have the, the framework in place and the criteria is the way we do our OGSTM and that we prioritize the business needs and it's always focused on the consumer. Yeah, that's amazing. It's, it's tough to keep the brand clean and maintain a uh, you know, the proper brand promise to the consumer and everything. There's no perfect brand. It, it doesn't exist. Uh, however, if it does exist, um, it looks something close to what you guys have developed. You guys have a great thing. That's why you guys are at iconic standard. Um, and again, if we dug under the hood, would we find problems? The answer is yes. Every brand has them. Um, but from the consumer standpoint and from the effort that I see put out about trying to keep a thing healthy and try to not just keep it healthy economically, but morally and do the right thing for the consumer and do the right thing for an environment. I know from our side, we're always tasked with, you know, if my company's doing work with you guys is reducing waste is kind of always a thing that we try to uh, maximize. You know, if we have to send a truck, let's send one truck, not 10 trucks. Um, and let's make sure these things are done right. And that's not uh, driven necessarily just off the economics of paying for 10 trucks, but it's the, the fuel and all these different things that gets used. And, we see that, and I, I always find that uh, an interesting thing to see from brands is when people logistically start looking at it and just, again, nothing's perfect. It's a group of humans working inside of a living, breathing thing, which we call a brand, um, and trying to grow it, and, and these decisions are tough. Um, I, I see that TNF has tons of ambassadors. It, it's part of your ethos to have ambassadors. I just did an, uh, uh, helped a, a writer do uh, some quotes and stuff for an article in Entrepreneur about ambassadors. And uh, it obviously starts with Ye and his anti-Semitic issues with his problems that he has. And 
the issues that caused Adidas. And of course, you know, I was ground zero uh, for Lance Armstrong and Oscar Pistorius um, at Oakley. And they relied on our systems that I put in place through my other company to help clean the marketplace with that. North Face has done really, really well with ambassadors. Um, you guys grow ambassadors. You have quite a few of them that run around, but you rarely have problems with your ambassadors, which is lucky um, from what I've seen. Um, and you guys have like, you, you've grown your business with sort of this mid-tier ambassador without having a, someone like super, super famous to try drive the product. Um, I look at this as the best way to do it. You have all these inspirational, aspirational people moving around there doing amazing things, but you, you guys aren't hanging your hat on a single person. Like, an, like a Lance Armstrong or somebody like that. Um, is this part of, is this by accident? Is it a, is it a like, is this a, f a very purposefully done sports marketing approach? Or is this uh, just by nature, the world of outdoor is slightly more fragmented and not filled with those people? Yeah, that's a good question. I've never given much thought about like you're exposing some of the you know be being partner with someone being having people that you that with a common goal you know uh can have its issues for sure we're all human you know at, at the bottom of it is that an athlete team an ambassador relationship you're relying on on human traits and human mm -hmm. there can be pros and cons you know to just how humans are in general uh, are we sheltered from it? Absolutely not. You know, I, I think, I think there are steps you can take to always be close to the people. And that's in every aspect. It's not necessarily just an ambassador and, and brand or athlete and brand relationships. I think that's in all of our relationships, right. um, to be conscious of, of what's the dynamic right now? Is it going well right now? Is it, are there, you know, kind of little red flags or, or just, you know, things that we should speak about? You know, I think in any relationships, if you ignore something, it'll blow up in your face at some point. <laughs> uh, and an, an example of, of what we're doing for this that, you know, is we keep, we have a big athlete team, but we also, we're, we're very close, you know, I don't, you know, for, for us in Canada, we have a bit of a, a regional team right. and the goal is always like, hopefully, you know, to get our ambassadors, our athletes access to the global team. You know, that's when we're like, we've done our job, you know, and our athletes, we're proud of them. They've been able to uh, kind of step it up to the next level. And uh, one of the things that the sports marketing team does every, every year is the athlete summit. So we, we, we basically fly globally all of our athletes in one location where there's, there's going to be workshops that are given on social media workshops, PR workshops, um, safety workshops, you know, for everywhere, you know, some of the, some of the mountaineering crew will engage with the trail runners and, you know, it's very, very, everyone gets together, no matter what, if you're a snowboarder in the backcountry or if you're a skier, trail runner, 
uh, an alpinist or a climber, anything. Everyone gets together on these common grounds. Uh, so that's one way for us. And, and obviously there's the internal team that's there also to, uh, to engage and just to just to 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 spend time really with our with, with our friends really there are friends there are co-workers colleagues you know and i think that's one step that you can be it's easy to sign a contract over a pdf and you know manage with the agent and all that you know but that doesn't it's not real uh and i think you need to put these steps in place and our sports marketing team does does an amazing job at just staying close and and supporting uh, and just engaging with our athletes and ambassadors. How important do you um, do you think it is for a brand to be able to leverage regional, let's call them global athletes, uh, in a marketplace? You know, you were talking about the the importance of uh, of uh, winter here in Canada and having regional global athletes. Uh, to leverage for content creation and also going back to that retail execution as well. Yeah, this is, I mean, when, when your athletes and your ambassadors understand also that, you know, there, there are, we are results driven and we're trying to win, you know, at retail and, and ultimately I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but it's going back to the consumer. If we can, get access to top tier athlete to our to our consumers either through a store presence you know an event or you know so, some of the events that we've done you know uh winter camp out for example where we'd invite like a pretty substantial team of athletes and ambassadors to engage and to you know meet and greet you know with consumers it's extremely important and we're very lucky in canada that uh you know some of some of the, some of our friends and you know, some of some of the athletes are in Canada, you know, even though they're in, on the global team, um, they are in our region at all times, you know. So the the Ian Mack of this world and the Nick McNutt, the blondes, you know, and Revy, like there's there's just like so many people, you know, especially in snow sport that are here in Canada. Uh, it's extremely important. At the same time, we need to respect that these are athletes and they've got a job to do. And part of it, yes, sometimes it's be part, you know, of our events and everything, but we always want to be mindful that, you know, that we don't want to, in, uh, you know, kind of own their schedule too much or, you know, th their primary focus needs to be how they're driven, how they're trying to, uh, elevate the sports that at the, at the, at the end of the day, it's, you know, they're testing our product. Uh, they're elevating the product, their sports, that that's what they're, that's what, that's what's inspiring people to kind of take notice of what they do. Yeah. I, that, that hands off, but hands on relationship that you're just like, it, it, it's a delicate balance. I've seen that balance happen in the heyday at a couple large brands that I've been able to touch where, when you can create a, an actual authentic community and build these athletes up, it gives you longevity. It gives you athletes that when they retire still support and, and are ambassadors against your, you know, with your brand and, and continue to go. You can see really clearly when that starts to fail, when contracts change, generally it's post when an athlete retires and, and, and then next thing you know, they're wearing the competitor's product. 
you can you can see through that that was just an economic experience um, for the athlete and for you guys to cultivate and put effort in against all the different variables he said even something as uh off brand as just mountain safety you know you, you guys are a mountain company but you're not charged with making sure these people don't die in avalanches but being cognizant that these athletes need education and helping them get these things and business advice and how to how to you know cultivate uh and build their own image to get a get a red bull sponsorship or get whatever the other thing is that's non-competitive against what you guys do so that they can live better lives and do their sport better that's a that's a, a really interesting thing um Carl, uh, thank you. I could talk to you endlessly. We're just over an hour here. Um, I'm going to bring you back uh, later in the year. I'd love to chat with you. I've got a bunch of things, uh, a whole notebook full of stuff that I didn't get to ask you. Um, but I do want to keep the uh, keep this sort of short and sweet. Thank you for your time. Uh, super appreciated um, your efforts in... Uh, showing up here and talking to us and being very transparent. Uh, before we go, there's a, a segment that I like to do, and we generally have um, pretty cool lives. Um, and I originally called it the you show me and I'll show you uh, <laughs> segment. Uh, I'm going to call it, I'm going to change it to the cool confessional. And it's a, a safe space where we get to not be cool people for a while because generally everyone thinks we got pretty cool jobs and we've worked our way up into these really interesting spots with lots of very cool brands. Um, today, Mike, in the cool confessional, um, I'm, I'm going to tell you guys that every single time I'm at a hockey game or a football game or a Canadian sporting event, I cry like a baby when I sing the national anthem. Every <laughs> single time. There hasn't been a time in the last 20 years when the Canadian anthem comes on that I do not have a tear running down both sides of my face and my wife or whoever I'm with will look at me and I'm carefully kind of brushing it off. But like, I, it, it just, it's a thing. It's a like, Swe sweaty eyes. They're just sweaty eyes. Oh, they're, they're so <laughs> sweaty. Um, it, it is something that I don't tell a ton of people about, but I'm so passionate about Canada. And when I hear that song, it just, it, I literally break. I can barely sing it. I, I break. So to bust uh, any illusions that anyone has that I'm a cool person, uh, I cry to the Canadian anthem all the time. Uh, Alex, I respect you, that. Yeah, There's okay. no shame. I respect no, that. I'll, I'll Good old it. patriotism. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's a tearjerker for me. Uh, Alex, do you have uh, anything you'd want to divulging yeah. the confessional today something i could share for sure is that most of the time when i sit down in the couch and the, my girlfriend's watching some girly um you know selling sunset uh type of uh tv show and i i, I sit and then i watch and then she goes like hey oh, babe you can do whatever you want you know and i go like oh yeah i just put my computer on my lap and and then suddenly i i just like stare at the show and, <laughs> and keep watching those girly reality show and that's my little uh shameless <laughs> there's nothing about watching the crew of selling sunset uh yeah it's, it's really <laughs> real estate inspiration it's just design inspiration that you're you're watching totally i yeah. love it i love it carl do you have anything to, to dish out in the cool confessional today yeah I'll, I'll i'll stick in the entertainment you've talked about like hockey and sporting events alex is talking uh, about like 
just cable television. Like we're we're always like you know through our music taste, we always like you know we want to know what's cool, what's you know in everything that we're getting entertained with. One thing that I'm a sucker for is just like it's pretty basic. It's YouTube. Like I've spoken about like my curiosity on on things. Yeah. I will like. There's a lot of good series out there now. You know, all the different platforms uh, are are starting to produce, and it's you can get lost in following all the series. But sometimes I get stuck down the rabbit hole of just like the YouTube algorithm and I, you know, just learning stuff that makes no sense that I will never use. And <laughs> it's not that cool, you know, to watch some some dude like telling us how he's raising his goats to, to get like the goat milk to process it into cheese. And I'll never do it. But I'm just curious to one more video, you know. I built a tennis court on YouTube instructional videos. So I have been down that rabbit hole. If we meet each other down that rabbit hole one day, let's pretend that we're best friends and, and high five in the YouTube <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh, thanks. Next everybody. time I'm in Calgary, uh, let's shoot some hoops. I'll bring my, uh, my shoes. I love it. I love it, guys. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, Carl, appreciate it. Alex, thank you very much. Everybody, you. enjoy the day. Take care.